Recording Sunday, February 27th, we're going to be talking China-Eastern Europe relations with... Hi, my name is Matej Schulczyk. I'm an analyst at the Central European Institute of Asia Studies at Think Tank based in Bratislava and Slovakia. Matej, thanks for being a part of China Talk. Um, how early do you want to start the, uh, the clock? Feel free to go back to the founding of the Republic. We could do Silk Road, uh, wherever you want to, um, uh, wherever you want to kick us off. Uh, with uh, China-Eastern Europe relations? Uh, more or less, China became an active part in this part of the world uh, starting around 2012, when it started its so-called 60 plus one uh, platform uniting various countries of the Central Eastern Europe uh, together with China in, in a sort of uh, semi-formal uh, or formalized uh, dialogue on, uh, on various uh, levels of, uh, of government. Uh, culminating in the in the annual summits of uh, heads of states and heads of governments. Uh, however, let's it's it's not really that that interesting for the current situation when it comes to Ukraine. Who is part of this platform? It's much more interesting to talk about who is not part of the platform when it, when you look on at on the map of the Eastern Europe, and you will see that pretty much three countries uh, of Eastern Europe stand out that, that geographically it would make sense to be part of the platform, but are not in it. Uh, and that's uh, namely, namely uh, Belarus, Ukraine, and Moldova, which uh, has been kind of interpreted that, that at the time when uh, China was uh, making its first inroads into the region, it did not want to upset uh, Russia and, was, and basically was taking into account Russian uh, interests uh, in the region. And it did not really want to uh, step on Russian toes directly uh, in, its, in its front yard, so to say. Um, so yeah, we, as a result, you know, uh, the uh, Chinese relations with uh, Belarus, with Ukraine, and then Moldova were de were developing really separately uh, from the rest of the region. Uh, however, of course, uh, China still has uh, many many interests localized there, especially in uh, in uh, Belarus and Ukraine. Uh, so, for example, the the most uh, visible one would be. Uh, when you talk about the Belt and Road Initiative, which was started around 2013 and was developing over time, uh, the most visible aspect of that is, of course, is the train connections, and uh, they pretty much uh, to, for the, the for the Chinese trains to get into Europe, they have to uh, run uh, either via Belarus or or via Ukraine. Uh, so uh, the situation in Ukraine, and we already know by now that uh, Ukrainian army has blown up the rail connections towards Russia pretty much impacts the ability of China to uh, maintain the train connections, uh, which were uh, actually over the last two years, so with uh, increasing disruptions to sea, sea transportation, uh, were growing on importance for uh, for the sake of exporting uh, Chinese products to Europe. Uh, that being said, though, uh, this is really a, a, a smaller of the interest that China has in the region. Uh, when you kind of uh, juxtapose its its uh, economic interest in Ukraine with its overall, let's say, strategic interest that uh, it has been uh, spending several years now on promoting uh, in, in many uh, times in some sort of alignment or, or uh, yeah, it's some sort of alignment with, with Russia uh, and this uh, quest to kind of reinterpret the world order to promote a multipolar uh, arrangement of the international affairs. Um, so yeah, uh, the current crisis uh, in Ukraine, uh, the, the Russian aggression in Ukraine, 
when we look on Chinese reaction, we pretty much have to take uh, these two uh, factors uh, into account. Sure. Um, let's zoom in then to to, to China-Ukraine relations. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when it comes to specifically to, to China-Ukraine relations, um, as I uh, hinted before, a lot of the Chinese interests lie in the transportation sector. Um, Ukraine is one of the possible pathways for, for Chinese products to get into Europe. Uh, also, there's been a lot of interest in agricultural uh, sectors. You know, uh, China has been buying up some some uh, agricultural land in Ukraine, which has been developed, uh, and uh, of course, agricultural products play play an important role in the in the economic uh, sector. Uh, but yeah, bulk of bulk of Chinese uh, Chinese attention on the Eastern European region was uh, localized elsewhere, and and uh, you know. Uh, more more diplomatic uh, energy was spent on developing relations with other countries of the region uh, rather than, than Ukraine, precisely because uh, of that uh, Russia factor in the in the equation. Sure. So so let's talk about it from the perspective of the of the Central and Eastern European countries. What was the sort of value proposition of of tighter relations with China, uh, and how is that potentially changing in the context of this war? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, when, when China came in, in 2012, with the offer to start a 16 plus one, uh, we have to, uh, realize that there was, uh, that a lot of the countries of Central Eastern Europe were, were, were a little bit cash strapped at the time in light of the financial crisis. Uh, so, uh, they have seen in China, uh, this kind of potential to bring in, uh, new cash into the region, uh, by promoting, uh, investment, uh, by, uh, being able to export uh, to China, and and this has been kind of the the main factor why a lot of the Central Eastern European countries were trying to develop relations with China. Uh, of course, uh, it was uh, this kind of analysis was uh, partially uh, partially influenced by let's say uh, romantic perceptions and and a little bit orientalistic uh, perceptions of of China. Where it will see as this uh, faraway exotic land, which is which is big and rich, and, and uh, it's been uh, growing. It, it's been economically growing for for decades uh, at the time, uh, and uh, pretty much uh, Central European and Eastern European politicians uh, wanted in on this uh, economic uh, benefit, uh, sort of let's say. Uh, however, you know, over time, what we have seen was that uh, China was making, of course, a lot of uh, investments related to premises, which um, have not really always uh, materialized. Of course, when on, on a closer look on Chinese, uh, let's say, investment in the region, you will realize that not really all of them are investments. A lot of them are infrastructure projects, which are pretty much just a form of uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese credit lines rather than investment proper. Uh, which when you look at this from the point of view of those, uh, Central Eastern European countries that are members of the EU is not really, um, a proposition that, that makes much sense for them. Uh, because from their point of view, uh, Chinese loans, Chinese credit lines are much more, uh, expensive compared to what they can obtain, uh, elsewhere. Either on either via traditional lenders like uh, European European banks and and uh, World Bank and so or or via European uh, structural funds. Of course, the situation is a little bit different when you look on the Western Balkans, for example, uh, where 
the the options to get uh cheap loans are a bit more limited compared to EU members where uh China where we have seen China be kind of a a plan B when it comes to providing financing to various infrastructure projects. Uh when it comes to that second goal that uh, Central and East European countries had with regards uh, towards China, that was uh, related to kind of uh, lowering their um, lo- lowering or, or balancing out the the trade imbalances that they had with China. Uh, of course, when you look at the structure of uh, of the trade between uh, China and Central Eastern Europe, uh, you will see that pretty much uh, all of these countries have a negative trade balance, which has been growing over the years. Uh, and, you know, by, by engaging with China, the countries hope to lower this imbalance by promoting exports. This did not really happen uh, either. Uh, of course, exports as such in absolute terms were growing during the past uh, 10 years. However, imports from China tended to grow even even more. So so uh, even though all of these countries are now export, now they are exporting more to China, the tra- trade imbalance has uh, grown uh even more uh so so it, all in all both from the point of view of investment and and exports um these uh goals did not really were not really fulfilled and, and you see now a lot of uh disillusionment across central eastern europe uh or or some sort of uh promise fatigue uh, uh among the politicians who are nowadays uh, much more reluctant to engage with China on this kind of economic issues, while at the same time we have seen a wave of uh, political change happening across Central Eastern Europe, where new governments are now uh, coming into power, uh, not the same ones as were uh, in power at the time that this engagement was starting, which are much more critical of China, not only in this uh, economic uh, issues, but also in terms of security and uh, human rights. Sure. Um, yeah. So, so let's let's explore yeah. that. Let's explore that dynamic in particular, Manchez. What do you think is driving? Um, it, it, it is driving the sort of reeling back from uh, uh, from China as a as a as an economic savior, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, the domestic political factor is really an important uh, aspect here uh, because. Uh, in many of the countries, you know, uh, those uh, governments, I mean, uh, pretty much uh, the governments that were promoting uh, deeper economic engagement with China were localized in only one part of the political spectrum. Uh, so uh, if you look, for example, Slovakia, on Czech Republic, elsewhere, you'll see that, lo- that many times it was uh, left-leaning political parties that were promoting these, uh, these relations. I would not necessarily say that this is ideologically motivated, uh, but uh, these political parties happened to be in power at the time where uh, China started the, the engagement with the region. And all, over time, the uh, various uh, various uh, measures or various tools, China uh, managed to cultivate uh, key personalities of these parties, either via corrosive capital, strategic corruption, and, and uh, these kind of problems that we are talking nowadays uh, more and more about. Uh, however, of course, uh, so, so, so if we look on, on uh, Slovakia, the country where I'm from, uh, during this time, we pretty much had, uh, since 2012 until 2020, uh, the, polit- the, the governments were pretty much uh, composed around, the sing- around one of the dominant political parties, which had a very... Uh, more or less quite strongly uh, pro-Chinese positions. 
uh, that does not mean that op opposing viewpoints did not exist in the country. Uh, he, if you at, at that time when Slovakia was uh, getting more close uh, or was getting closer to China, if you would look at uh, the more on the deeper level of the Slovak politics and you would analyze the positions of the political opposition, for example, you would find a lot of support for Tibet, for Taiwan, etc. Uh, so in 2020, there was an election in Slovakia and the opposition won that election. Uh, and even though China was uh, not even, uh, was very, basically uh, a non-issue in the political race at the time, uh, the election results impacted the foreign policy towards China pretty strongly, uh, precisely because they already had uh, much more value-based positions on China. And, and this had uh, pretty much very practical ramifications for China um, in Slovakia. Uh, when it comes to, uh, for example, Slovakia's deeper engagement with Taiwan over the past uh, two years, uh, more international criticism of China and various uh, human rights uh, fora and so forth. And, and this kind of dynamic is not um, is not unique to Slovakia. Pretty much we have seen the same dynamic happening in Lithuania. We have seen the same dynamic happening in the Czech Republic. And we may see the same dynamic again in uh, other countries uh, of the region. If uh, by some luck, uh, the opposition in Hungary would win uh, the upcoming elections, uh, it would have similar kind of impact, I believe. And what do you think the sort of mix is in the frustration? Is it that the sort of economic promises haven't borne out as much? Is it human rights concerns? Like how would, how would you sort of like, if you have 100 points to assign on what people are upset about, how would you sort of apportion them? Yeah. Well, it's it's uh, a little bit of of both, or, or but of course uh, the economic aspect is is a uh, very important uh, because this was uh, the whole uh, driving force uh, behind the original engagement with China that we want to have uh, more trade with China, we want to attract Ch Chinese investment with uh, high added value, uh, and of course this what this did not uh, happen. Uh, it got some people, uh, not all politicians, but, but a lot of politicians, uh, became thinking whether it is worth it to, you know, um, not deal with the associated security issues or, or, uh, the broader issues of, of human rights and, and et cetera, uh, whether it's worth it, you know, to kind of, uh, auto-censor, uh, the political, um, uh, political statement and when the associated economic benefits are not coming. Yeah. How much do you think China's very ambiguous response to what's happening in Ukraine right now is going to, uh, is going to impact, um, impact these trajectories? So China and its reaction to Ukraine or the overall uh, conflict on Ukraine and its impact on China's relations with uh, Eastern Europe, it's, it's going to have a big impact, you know. Uh, one reason is that pretty much... Um, Central Central Europeans uh, and, and Eastern Europeans' uh, perception of what makes China an important partner are the train connections, and uh, that's that's one of the most visible things. And uh, you know, even in countries that were not so uh, proactive in their engagement with uh, China, the train connections were seen as something they want to have because it pretty much brings in uh, money, even if. The trains just uh, run through and uh, go towards other destinations. Now that's going to be, uh, of course, uh, impossible. Um, 
Second, uh, the discourse uh, within Central East Europe about uh, what kind of international actor China is has been uh, becoming more prominent. Discussions about whether you know uh, what kind of uh, what kind of uh, global order China wishes to see, how uh, how it uh, is promoting its own interests, were uh, non-existent, let's say, a decade ago. Uh, nowadays, they are much more prominent, and uh, depending on how China reacts to that crisis in Ukraine, uh, it's going to have a really uh, big impact on uh, how uh, Central European uh, and Eastern European governments uh, perceive China. Um, we have to say that, you know, uh, for uh, the countries on Ukraine's border, this is not really any uh, distant crisis. This is really something that we are seeing uh, ramifications of already. Uh, you know, uh, with thousands, ten, tens of thousands of refugees uh, fleeing Ukraine uh, to Slovakia, to Poland, to Romania, to Hungary, uh, and of course, these these are really uh, direct impacts of the of the crisis of, of the of Russian aggression. And uh, of course, if China is going to be propping up Russia and and uh, providing it with its support, that's going to impact you know how how China is perceived uh, in the region. Thinking about this in the context of sort of. China's broader global ambitions. What's what? What's your what's your hot take on uh, you know to what extent she's happy with what's going on uh, right now? Uh, that's a really good question, and of course we all want to have an answer to that. Uh, but but as usual, when it comes to China, it's a little bit of uh, reading of tea leaves. Uh, but but yeah, let's let's do some uh, hot takes on this. Uh, even though uh, China has uh, its own economic interests uh, in Ukraine, which are, of course, endangered, uh, I think that the broader uh, strategic implications are now more important for China. China is not really uh, hiding the fact that they wish to see a multipolar uh, world order where um, the EU and the US are not really a global a global hegemon, but but just one of the poles of that uh, of that uh, international order. Russia would be the other one, China another one, etc. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, the current uh, crisis can lead to that uh, can lead to that uh, result, provided that that Putin is successful with the incursion in in Ukraine. Um, of course. China is kind of hedging its its bets a little bit. It's not providing Russia with a full support. Uh, it's still uh, now when they are flaunting the, the idea that uh, Ukraine's territorial integrity needs to be guaranteed, uh, sovereignty should be respected. And these are kind of mainstays of China's uh, foreign policy, which uh, China likes to refer to as kind of normative framing of its own decision making when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, however, at the same time, we see that, you know, uh, China has been really uh, proclaiming that let's not forget that it's the U.S. and the West who's, blamed, who's to blame for the crisis, which kind of signals why, uh, where China stands uh, and, and what, it is, what it wants to achieve. Uh, uh, secondly, uh, which is, I think, uh, quite important to talk about is that uh, over the last uh, decade or two decades, let's say, uh, we have seen that the, the global geopolitical and geoeconomic centers of gravity have been shifting from, let's say, the, the, the transatlantic slash European area towards the, the Pacific, uh, which kind of started with uh, Obama's pivot to Asia and has been continued ever since then. Uh, over the past years, there's been even increasing talk, talk about uh, the EU focusing on, uh, on China. 
or end of the Indo-Pacific with the China being for NATO and this kind of thing. And of course, this has been putting some sort of uh, external pressure on China and its ability to operate in the Indo-Pacific and, uh, and uh, promoting its own interest there of achieving some sort of regional hegemony. Um, with the current crisis in, in Ukraine, of course, uh, all the attention is now back to Europe, which kind of provides uh, China with a little, little bit of more room to breathe in, in its own uh, periphery and, and in the whole Indo-Pacific uh, Pacific area. Uh, and, and thirdly, of course, uh, a lot of the talk is uh, on uh, what this means for China-Taiwan relations. And even though I don't think that it's imminent at Taiwan, Taiwan is very likely. Uh, still, we have to recognize the fact that, uh, of course, China is very closely observing the situation in Ukraine, uh, how the Western governments are reacting to it, what kind of countermeasures they are imposing, and how swift are the reactions, which, uh, if such unfortunate day should come where China will decide uh, to invade Taiwan, uh, they would, this kind of observations would play an important role in the decision-making process and the strategic calculus of China there. Sure. So, Matez, what, what is your take on um, uh, on the EU's response in particular so far? Yeah, uh, well, I, I have to say that, that you know, uh, the EU response could be much worse. Uh, we have seen the repeated crises in the past, uh, wherever in the world where, where EU was really, uh, really slow to respond, that consensus was difficult to achieve. But with this really uh, a huge crisis, which is kind of unprecedented in the since the World War II, let's say, um, I have to say that the reaction of uh, the EU and especially the uh, members of the EU from the Central and Eastern Europe uh, has been uh, quite surprisingly, uh, surprisingly good, I would say. You know, of course, we have seen blunders coming out of Germany, for example, and the very slow response uh, and, and uh, not being willing originally to, to impose uh, some of the sanctions. Uh, it's, now it's good to see that even, even though that some of the sanctions could come, come much sooner, it's good to see that the, the, Western, uh, the West, together with uh, democratic allies in East Asia, like Japan, for example, and Taiwan, has been able to put in place really a robust uh, sanctions regime, which can have a very strong uh, impact on Russia. Uh, of course, besides the imminent sanctions, which are going to be uh, very damaging to Russia, it's important to talk about how to, uh, after the crisis is over, how to clean up uh, our own act uh, internally so that uh, we are uh, much more uh, flexible in making for influence, policy decisions. I think that the, the current crisis may kind of uh, speed up the discussions about the moving towards qualified majority voting so that you would be much, uh, much more flexible and, and, uh, and uh, could make uh, decisions uh, much faster in the future. And of course, uh, it's probably going to um, speed up also the discussions about various uh, measures that to counter strategic corruption and corrosive capital within the EU, uh, which, of course, uh, have a detrimental effect on uh, decision-making processes in, in precisely in this kind of crisis. What, what does that mean exactly, Matej? So, 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 you know, uh, when it comes to strategic corruption and corrosive capital, we are talking about um, various ways uh, via which foreign authoritarian uh, regimes have managed to capture uh, European elites. So, uh, for example, the, uh, some of the, the investments into critical sectors uh, or 
by, uh, you know, uh, engaging in various forms of, uh, influencing activities, they have been gaining allies, uh, which are now, which now may be, uh, reluctant to keep, to take some of the more, uh, inf- to, to take some of the actions that are, uh, necessary to counter, uh, the Russian, uh, aggression. Um, so, uh, of course, if you are a politician that has been, uh, economically benefiting from the, from the economic relations with Russia for, let's, for example, you are not going to be, uh, very eager to take the necessary, uh, countermeasures to, to, uh, to prevent, prevent further escalation of the conflict. Uh, and, and the presence of this kind of coercive capital, uh, which is basically capital that is, uh, not oriented by market values. It's not, uh, not very transparent, uh, has become a problem, you know? So, so if you look on, for example, on, uh, the entire city of London, how much Russian capital is located there, uh, or, uh, how much, uh, capital has been flowing into the EU from China to various, uh, types of, uh, investments into critical sectors. Those are all really problematic, uh, things and they will need to be, uh, handled, uh, in the near future. Of course, some of the action has already be, been taken by, for example, adopting the EU-wide, uh, framework regulation on, uh, investment screening, uh, or, uh, various, uh, or the new measures of due diligence, uh, of course, ongoing discussions about anti-coercion measures. Um, and, and, and yeah, this kind of crisis is, is precisely the time where uh, the debate about adoption of uh, preventive measures like this will be sped up. Yeah, no, it's um, uh, it, it's really interesting reflecting, you know, to what extent this is going to cause the EU to rethink its long-term relationship with China. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. It's, it, I, I really think so that it's going to lead to a lot of rethinking across the EU, not only on relations with China or Russia. But, but overall on uh, how uh, European values are going to be protected and uh, how uh, and what kind of actor that you wants to be in the global uh, arena. You know, uh, if you are, uh, if we have been already talking about Germany, it's, you know, uh, a, a good example is, you know, the, the, the long-term reluctance of Germany to be a very active uh, military uh, military player in the global, uh, in, in the global affairs. Uh, it has been reluctant to um, increase uh, defense spending to the two percent that are kind of the soft requirements of the NATO. But but now, in light of the Russian crisis uh, of the Russian aggression in Ukraine, we have seen that even after initial reluctance, Germany is now going to be spending uh, has has dedicated uh, uh, a lot of new spending to uh, towards its military and and defense budget, which are even over the two percent threshold now. I wanted to come back to a point uh, you mentioned earlier in this sort of uh, uh, Eastern Central Europe, Taiwan sympathy, which has like been been kind of developing in a really interesting way over the past few, uh, you know, six months or so. What What is driving this this impulse? Yeah, it's certainly uh, very interesting to observe and several factors are influencing that development. Uh, the first one is uh, what I what I've already talked about this this uh, fatigue with China and its uh, unfulfilled promises. So nowadays, uh, some actors are you know uh, discovering that East Asia is not only about not only China that there are uh, other actors uh, with which we can have economic relations. 
which are going to be uh, which can potentially be much more beneficial than than China without having this kind of uh, political slash security baggage, as uh, would be the case uh, with China, which uh, does not really conform to many of the values that we stand for in Europe. Um, secondly, uh, Taiwan, by, by some politicians, it is really seen as this kind of uh, anti-China. So, so uh, the relationship for them is not really motivated by uh, wishing to have uh, a meaningful uh, relationship with Taiwan, but uh, but it's really seen as as a, a sort of uh, getting back at China. You know, it, it's it's fascinating in its own regard how how Taiwan is framed in uh, in the discourse of some politicians that that we need to have with relations uh, with with Taiwan because China is uh, not conforming to our values. So 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 this kind of juxtaposition of China and Taiwan is an important factor in some cases. Um, and, and yeah, let's not forget that Taiwan is that these relations with Taiwan are really not completely. Taiwan has been in the region of Central Eastern Europe present for quite some time. So uh, if you look on uh, Czech Republic or Slovakia, which have been uh, uh, together with Lithuania and some sort of avant-garde of this new push for Hollandian relations with Taiwan, uh, Taiwan has already been economically very much a present uh, actor in these countries. Uh, it has made substantial investments in the region in the past. Um, it's contributed quite quite strongly to the workforce, to, to tax payments and, and similar. Uh, and, and the countries have been deriving a lot of dem- dem- benefits out of that. Um, and and the, yeah, so and the last factor would be the domestic political factor, which I've said, uh, which I talked about uh, in the past. That now we have uh, new governments in many of the countries that are uh, nowadays. Um, much more China critical, uh, which have uh, been having, which have been long-term supporters of Taiwan, uh, but they did not have until now the the opportunity to impact the foreign policy making. Um, Matej, because I don't have many opportunities to talk to Slovaks, I want to spend this dark uh, ten minutes on this dark weekend's reminiscing about the month I hung out in uh, Bratislava. Uh, on a very odd project, interviewing people about open government and procurement, but also getting to spend three of the happiest days of my life at the Pohona Music Festival. What makes this uh, gathering so fantastic? Yeah, it's it's a pretty and amazing place. It's one of my uh, favorite uh, festivals in Slovakia, and, and it's really really special. You know, for for uh, three or four days, you have a gathering of of uh, like-minded liberal people, regardless of, of age. You know, you have young people mixing it with, uh, with new parents, with, with elderly people who just come there to enjoy the time, listen to some good music, while at the same time uh, be able to engage in, in, uh, in uh, interesting discussions upon uh, the current issues. Uh, because, you know, for what our festival is not only about music, a lot of uh, political discussions are happening there. You you will see uh, journalists intermingling with with uh, with festival goers and and politicians who go there. Uh, it, it it really is a special place, you know. A lot of the NGOs would set up their own uh, own platforms there, you know, to promote their own work uh, and engage directly with with people who uh, many of many of whom are their supporters, for example. So so really, it, it's an amazing place. Uh, of course, uh, unfortunately, due to COVID, the ability to organize the festival has been uh, has been diminished, and it's been much more difficult to engage there. 
Uh, however, uh, as, as, as you said, it's really, uh, it's a really great place. And, and I hope that, uh, we're going to be able to, you know, soon, uh, meet there with, with Franklin and yeah. enjoy some music. <laughs> I, I, I just remember, you know, the, the multi-generational thing really stuck out to me. And then just like they had these book talks and, and tents and, and discussions and people debating philosophy and politics and like people would go to them. And would sit there and listen and be really engaged. And, like, just thinking about in American music festivals, you know, where they try to do some, like, art or culture thing on the side, it's kind of like a joke. And, you know, you'd maybe get, like, five people who want to hang out in that tent because it has, like, better AC or something. But regardless, um, it was uh, it was really special. And, um, you know, there's something uh, there was something magical there. And I do hope to make it back at some point in uh, in my life. So, anyways. Yeah, you're definitely you're definitely sure. <laughs> 20, 2023, we're gonna have a China Talk tent. Uh, uh, maybe I'll set up a little desk and we'll record some live shows. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope so. That'll be really uh, a great platform. Yeah, and and uh, I hope that and I'm really glad that you know that that's just back on you because, as you said, the spirit of the event is truly something something special. Uh, I think it was 2000. 17, I was, yeah, having, uh, doing some work there, uh, as a representative of the NGO that I was working for at the time, you know, uh, manning our own booth. And it was really, uh, amazing to see, you know, uh, it was an anti-corruption NGO and, and it was really amazing to see uh, a lot of the young and older Slovak just to stop by on their way from, from one closer to another to discuss corruption and how to prevent it in Slovakia, uh, just, you know, uh, for a few minutes. And, and, and it was really a great energy. Yeah. You, you know what it made me feel also, Matej, like like that I'm so spoiled living in America um, just because like, you know, the reason there isn't that sort of energy is that like young liberals don't feel like they're in a minority. Right. And they don't feel like there's like a entire country which is sort of arrayed against them. And that, you know, is a that, that feeling that was in that was this was pre-Trump. Right. So I think I think, you know, the vibe is a little different in the in the U.S. maybe before then. But, yeah, yeah. You know, thinking back to like, you know, it, it comes back to the Ukraine story as well. It's like this freedom, this whole freedom thing you really can't take for granted. And um, and I don't know, is that too, too much yeah. of a stretch? What do you think? <laughs> no, it's definitely really strange. I don't know. We should uh, definitely never take freedom uh, and and rights and rights of liberties as as granted, because once you do that, that's precisely the point when they become uh, endangered. Uh, it's a constant process uh, to make sure that uh, that uh, democracy is preserved and that various uh, negative forces, which uh, are present, you know, in every country, uh, do not uh, get the ground to to you know battle uh, uh, on democracy below. Slip. 
Kiev, freestyle kufra, leta burka, zaparkovaná sedba, repraka, podzemná hudba, púšťa v New York, boom bap, ako cez starý boombox, boom, mesiu treba vedieť, kedy máš zaradiť boombox. A nedela vždy býva taká bolestivá, preto radšej nechodíme spať a potravina, bereme vína. A nedela vždy býva taká bolestivá, preto radšej moje pamäti tá svina chýba Lil Wigga. A brata from Madada, Madada mi rozpráva, že sa mu rozpadá jeho dlhoročný vzťah, smoking rock, OCB, vodky čin, bol si zlý, no a čo, dal si letu ako puberďák. Yo, what's up, mama? Som na Bahamách, žerem na nás. Horážový sunrise padá na nás. Big boy clap, na tie kvici bakete ta bandana. Vútej klen, dala dala. Yo, what's up, mama? Som na Bahamách, žerem na nás. Horážový sunrise padá na nás. Big boy clap, na tie kvici bakete ta bandana. Vútej klen, dala dala, mám rád trap. Harlem, Brooklyn, Queens a Bronx. Cypress Hill hit from the bong. Zvrdí vonku, to sa ma tlačili ganžu ako stup. Kým som to spýtoval štúdiu, fire in the pool. Tu, 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 Takým ako ty vravia, že rap je primitívny Vo svojom texte povieš A, nepovieš Z Filmy, moja skupina je nulová No ja nemyslím tú krdnú Stále máme radi hudbu, kostu špina, bola tvrdú Gauča bass, to není copy and paste oh. Super freak, super freak, Rick James oh. Veľké disky vystredali street a skate oh. I scoop shit, it was a good day oh. Juicy J, UGK, Hurricane Chris, Aj Bebe, Southside Bay All they play in mojom aute Super dupa fla, astronauti Super dupa fla, astronauti Big boy clap, bada na bucket head Bolo to súdené letu a postečo bolo v dead Ja som big boy clap, bada na bucket head Zavolaj ma na feed, už to nebude tvoj track Big boy clap, bada na bucket head Bolo to súdené letu a postečo bolo v dead Ja som big boy clap, bada na bucket head Večer výzvom, parkovisko a rap Urob creep walk, urob creep walk Šušťakový weirdo back on the block Ja, ja, urob creep walk, urob creep walk Šušťakový weirdo back on the block Nenávidím tracky o lete, no keď píše pero za mňa, tak to musí byť pravda tu. Rebre, 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 sú smrdi, ktorí nestarnú. O mesiac vyrážame späť na túr. Čas na zešla krak, čas na zešla krak, čas na zešla krak, čas na zešla krak. Put freak, put freak, put freak, put freak, put freak, put freak, put freak. Urob hook, 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 urob hook. Love it, man. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I am excited to announce the Adweek Podcast Network, the first ever podcast network created for brand enthusiasts and anyone curious about the latest trends in marketing, advertising, technology, and culture. Adweek has partnered with leading industry voices to bring you analysis of trends, pressing challenges, and to share top-tier insights to help you level up your career, creativity, and strategy. Starting April 12th, you will get to hear brand new shows like Young Influentials, The Speed of Culture, Adweek Presents, and some of your favorites like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, CMO Moves, and Season 2 of Metaverse Marketing. We are also happy to be the new home for amazing shows like Brave Commerce, The Great Fail, and To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Learn more by visiting adweek.com slash podcasts. That's adweek.com slash podcasts. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, A-cast. 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 A